You are listening to Sunday Gospel Reflections, a podcast made possible through the work of the Institute of Catholic Culture. I'm Father Hezekiah Carnazzo, founder and executive director of the Institute and your host for this program. In this podcast, we'll explore the historical and literary context, themes, and significance of the readings for the coming Sunday. This podcast was originally recorded as a video. For the full viewing experience, please visit us at instituteofcatholicculture.org. Blessed is our God at all times, both now and ever, and unto ages of ages. Amen. O Master, who loves mankind, illuminate our hearts with the pure light of your divine knowledge and open the eyes of our mind to understand the teachings of your holy scriptures and still in us also the fear of your blessed commandments that that we may overcome all carnal desires entering upon a spiritual life and understanding and acting in all things according to your holy will for you are the enlightenment of our souls and bodies O christ god and you we give glory together with your eternal father and your all holy gracious and like you spirit both now and ever and unto ages of ages amen. amen in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy spirit amen welcome back annie mitchell Father Hezekiah said it's good to be back. It's How good are you? To be with our ICC family for Latare Sunday. Latare Sunday. Rejoice. Yeah. Just kind of, it's a funny thing. You're at the midpoint, kind of, but really kind of drawing closer because Palm Sunday is about to hit. So it's like, we're on that. We're getting there. We're getting there. But here we are, fourth Sunday of Lent. And uh, we're going to take a look at some anointings here for Samuel, right? Give us our text. Yes, absolutely. So the first reading for the fourth Sunday of Lent this year, 1 Samuel chapter 16. Now stick with me here, folks. There's a lot that they kind of cut out to, to keep the narrative of the story. So we start with verse 1 and then do verses 6 and 7 and then verses 10 through 13. The responsorial psalm is Psalm 23. The gospel is John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. And the epistle is Ephesians chapter 5, verses 8 through 14. Mm-hmm. There we have it. Um, I, I was, you were reading those, I was looking, I was like, why did they cut out 16 1a? Like, how yeah, bad can a half a verse be? <laughs> Well, it's bad if you're biblically illiterate. That's why they took it out. So the answer to the question or the answer to the problem is not to cut it out. The answer is to teach the people, which is why the ICC exists. Because let's go. We're going to give you not only at the Institute, you're going to get your Sunday Gospel Reflection, starting with 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1b, but we're doing a deep dive here because we're going to give you 1A. Okay. Oh, man. Oh, the Lord oh, said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul, seeing I have rejected him from being king over Israel? Now we pick up B, which is which is all right. Okay, fine. You know, you want to you get just the positive move here, but it does disconnect this text from its context because there's your context yeah so well, yeah it was going to be my first question to you <laughs> there you go okay so okay well editor there, there we go let's go ahead and start with first samuel chapter 16 verse 1b okay got it okay here we go the lord said to samuel fill your horn with oil and be on your way i am sending you to jesse of bethlehem 
for I have chosen my king from among his sons. As Jesse and his sons came to the sacrifice, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not judge from his appearance or from his lofty stature, because I have rejected him. Not as man sees, does God see, because man sees the appearance, but God looks into the heart. Okay, now stop for a second, Annie. We saw all of our participants who might actually have your Bibles out, God willing, are going to see this is where the text skips, uh, jumps again to verse 10. And basically what happens here is Jesse parades his sons in front of Samuel and says, take my oldest. And, 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 and Samuel says, no, and he kids the next born, the next born. So there's a it, it, the, the 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 lectionary text skips a few verses because of this kind of parade of sons and gets the first and then gets the the, the last. So that's what's going on there. Go ahead. Okay. In the same way, Jesse presented seven sons before Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, "The Lord has not chosen any one of these." Then Samuel asked Jesse. Are these all the sons you have? Jesse replied, There is still the youngest who is tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send for him. We will not begin the sacrificial banquet until he arrives here. Jesse sent and had the young man brought to them. He was ruddy, a youth handsome to behold, and making a splendid appearance. The Lord said, There, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel, with the horn of oil in hand, anointed David in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. It's kind of interesting that he still notices, even though God said, don't look at appearance, like Samuel still notices that David's <laughs> handsome too. I was just thinking about that as I well, read Well, this is actually a really important point because this is part of the problem of a text without a context is no text at all. And that's exactly what we have here, because you're right to notice this inconsistency. You would have expected him to come forward like he wasn't too hot looking, you know, he wasn't yeah, he was not, ugly. not handsome, <laughs> but he's ruddy and he's, and he is handsome. But, but uh, of course the, the question ultimately is not the physical appearance. The question is what's in the heart. And that's the fundamental point here and and in order to contextualize this i mean i don't know annie to what extent do we need to do it can i just do a really fast fast pace i'm gonna go i'm going Absolutely. big and then we got boom, a boom, long boom. gospel to get to so yeah, yeah go okay, fast ready pace. ready yeah ready See to be anointed on. in hebrew is to be messiah right to be right. to be made the messiah to be anointed that's what it means so 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 we call jesus the messiah but jesus is not the first messiah who's the first one to be anointed and of course the anointing with oil is a is a kind of sacramental it's a, a, a sign right it's a it's a sign of a of a of a, a deeper anointing or a more important anointing as the gift of the holy spirit okay mm -hmm. well who's the first person to be anointed as king of god's people was adam in paradise Right. We have kings all throughout salvation history who are, who are the, the Messiah, the anointed one of God. And that is the proper title of the king, the one who is anointed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, that's the that's the big context. Right. So, then the next context follows right on that. And that is 
that the, the, the idea of, of God, God's people having a king in the image and likeness of the king of all is part of the narrative. It's the expected situation, right? Because, of course, God is king and we are made in his image and likeness. Therefore, we are to have a king. And this is, this is kind of normal. But there's there's movements in salvation history where there are kings and then there are not kings during time or there are, the kings are in hiding during times of persecution when they're in Egypt. And so now in first Samuel, the God, God's people have come back from Egypt. The exodus is now complete. They're back in the Holy Land. They've established themselves. They've retaken Jerusalem. And now the, the king can come back. The king can be restored to the throne. And this is what we're talking about here. The king of god's people was always the 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 one in the the family line who received the blessing of the father to become head of the household and we've done this in swords and serpents before we don't need to do that here but just to remember back to genesis chapter 49 very quickly genesis chapter 49 verse 9 jacob or israel blesses his sons but he skips the older sons for a number of reasons that are related here in this chapter and the chapters previous and in chapter in verse 9 judah who's his fourth born son actually becomes the eldest if you will he's the one who becomes the head of the household he's going to become the the king in the image and likeness of of the king of all right and so judah is a lion's well chapter 49 verse 9 and then it's going to say the scepter shall not depart from judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to the one whom it belongs this is the great prophecy of ultimately of jesus but this line of judah is very important. It's where we get the term Jews from, right? The line of Judah. Judah is one of the 12 sons. He is the one who becomes the head of the house, the head of the kingdom, the king of the kingdom, and his descendants. But of course, just after this, they end up in in, in Egypt, in slavery. And so the sons of Israel kind of take a back seat. They're, they kind of put their head down. They disappear, right? They're only going to reappear a little bit later. At this time, once the throne city is retaken and the people of God can dwell securely, but not all goes well, because just as they retake the throne city, just as they reestablish themselves, they start to look for the king. But the vision of the people is all wrong. And here's where it is important for the context immediately to this text. And that is first Samuel chapter eight. And that is the anointing of Saul. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 1, when Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain, and they took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons are not walking your ways. Now appoint for us a king from the tribe of Judah. That's Mm-mm-mm. not what it says. It's not what it says. It says a, a king like all the other nations. And ultimately they are, and, and notice now, well, let's, we can keep reading because it's valuable. Okay. But things just, the thing displeased Samuel and they said, give us a king to govern us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord and, and the Lord said to Samuel, hearken the voice of the people and all they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me from being king over them. There's the fundamental breakdown. Now, chapter nine, verse one, there was a man of Benjamin, right? Not of Judah, 
Not of Judah. Whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, uh, son of Zeor, son, okay, blah, da, 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 a Benjamite, a man of wealth, and he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young a man young was he. Man. There's your context to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 6, and actually verse 7. Verse 7, the Lord sees not as man sees, but man looks on the outward appearances, but the Lord looks on the heart. The problem with Saul ultimately is going to be his heart. And the indication you've got a problem is that they're looking, their vision is to find the handsome one. Notice the difference now. Samuel's ruddy and handsome, but he's not seen for his ruddiness and handsomeness. In fact, as man sees, he's not seen for anything but being worthless. Right? Jesse's like, here's my oldest. No, here's my next. Here's my next. Here's my next. He doesn't even bring his son David out, right? Right? To be, he doesn't yeah. even, he ignores him. He runs through the whole line of his sons. He's like, and then Samuel has to say, wait a minute, this can't be everybody. And Jesse says, it's everybody. I mean, come on. I got the stupid little, my little, you know, kid over here. Notice the only one that's actually working. Yeah. <laughs> right? yeah the yeah. only one actually doing the job is the, the shepherd. Kid. Yeah. So you got the fat older kid sitting around playing Nintendo and, <laughs> and David's actually digging ditches, right? He's out there shepherding God, uh, the, the, sh the sheep. He's actually doing something. He's like, oh, I guess you know, you're not going to want him. Right. And then he's brought forward. But what's the key to David? The key to David is, is actually what he's doing and what his heart is leading him to do. Take a look at Second Samuel chapter five. Second Samuel chapter five. That's second Samuel, right? We were in first. Now we're second Samuel. Yeah. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are bone of and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you that led us and brought us in, in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel and shall be prince over Israel. Okay, so this is, this is the point, is that David is chosen because he's a shepherd, right? He's to, because of what he's doing, God is going to use this, this heart of the man to be the heart of the people, mm. if you will. Okay, so there's there's that little thing about the the ruddiness versus the handsomeness versus seen as God sees and God sees the man. Go ahead. Okay, so can you talk about this story in light of Lent? I mean, why are we hearing this right now? Why are I don't know why we're here? <laughs> Just kidding. no. Well, there's a couple. I think I think a couple of of maybe layers that we could we could start to see here. The first is that of the catechumen who's about to be baptized, right? They're and about when, to be anointed, are they not? And, and to be anointed, right? To be baptized. Well, in the in the ancient church, you never made a real hard distinction between baptism and confirmation. I mean, there was a distinction, but but they were the same animal, right? And oh, so uh, and we still see that on Easter night, right? Baptism, confirmation, right there together. That's the way it's supposed to be. That's the way it was, okay? Take a look back with me at 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Then Samuel took a vial of oil and poured it on his, that's Saul's head, and kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people? Now, I'm going to come up to verse 6. 
Then the spirit of the Lord will come mightily upon you and you shall prophesy uh, with them and be turned into another man. Do you see? And so, mm-hmm. and so there's this idea of this transformation that which takes place through the anointing of oil. Our catechumens are about to become Christians, christened, anointed, messiahed, to be given a new mission, a new life. Yeah, so there's a certainly... There's certainly that level of uh, of communication that's going on, and I think that's probably the primary driving force here. But also, we might see this passage in, in light of what Jesus is about to do, and that's he's about to go to Jerusalem to be um, to be enthroned, yeah, to be enthroned as king over God's people and reign now from the cross to so that he might do for his people what a shepherd does. Because it's God who is our king and God who is our shepherd. And what does a shepherd do? He lays down his life for his sheep. That he might bring them to, uh, to the green pastures, right? To the, to the running water. Um, that, he, that his sheep might live. This is what the shepherd does. Um, and, uh, and, and we're going to get that a little bit, by the way, in, uh, in the responsorial Psalm, but I think in both these ways that the catechumen preparing all of us preparing, but also Jesus preparing and all of us preparing with him. Yeah. Um, well, let's look at the responsorial Psalm. You were just quoting so heavily from it. Psalm 23, probably, what would you say? Top five famous Psalms. Yeah, it's because when you when we read these words, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. We have our imagination goes to our Aunt Susie's funeral, right? Because this is the psalm that's always done at the funeral. This is not a good way to read the scriptures in a sense that we're applying, we're contextualizing the context, our, our imagination goes to that instead of its original context. But what is its original context? Well, who wrote the Psalms? David. David. Well, David, David's writing his experience, right? Yeah. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. For thou art with me, my, thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Okay, what's going on? Well, David was out there as a little boy by himself. You know, imagine him as the sun is setting and he's and he's getting the sheep. You got to go back to the to their house and... They're, you know, maybe not following as they should. And he's, and it's starting to, and he's starting to hear the animals in the bushes coming out in the evening, you know, uh, and it's scary for a little boy and his brothers were worthless and left him all alone. Right. So who did he have to turn to for protection, but the Lord, and this is, this is, this is David's prayer as a boy. The Lord is my shepherd out there in the field. I shall not want. Right. Uh, so so we have to that's our context we should have in our in our mind as we turn to these passages and then apply them to the funeral as we now make our way through the shadow of the valley of death we have no fear because the lord is is in control of this the lord is our king the lord is our shepherd and david's anointing david's messiahing being made the king 
is a restoration of the kingship of God. For now, we have a man who is restored in the image and likeness of God. Yeah, I mean, you stopped short of this verse, but we'll get, you spread the table before me in the sight of my foes. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Mm -hmm. Very beautiful. And uh, Eucharistic imagery that we receive there, especially in light of the catechumen preparing to be baptized, confirmed, and then now the, the Eucharistic the gifts. Yeah. Yeah. St. Augustine says, the time the rod has passed, the time when I was small and animal-like and was in instructed amid the flock in the pasture. Now, after the era of the rod, I have begun to be guided under your staff, and now you have prepared a table before me so that I may no longer feed or no longer feed on milk like a baby, but on adult, as an adult, eat solid food and be strengthened against those who oppress me. This application, I guess, is very beautiful for the Lenten journey. For those we have relied upon our own staff, our own ways, our own paths. But now in the Lenten season, we remember again the staff of the Lord and the ways of the Lord and the protections he gives us and the path he's guiding us on, a path which only he can show us. And though it may look dark to us, the path ahead is enlightened by the gift of the resurrection, which is before us. As a man who was born blind is going to find out. Hey, Father, you want to look at the gospel? Amen. Amen. John chapter 9. John chapter 9. So I wanted to start off with some questions first before we get into this. Yep. Um, Father, last week we were hearing the gospel of, of the Samaritan woman at the well, John chapter 4. Um and so now we're moving on to, to John chapter nine with the story of the blind man. What has happened between then and now to kind of help us get more of the context of what Jesus is doing? You know, Annie, I would encourage the, the first of all, your question is an excellent one. It's one we always have to answer. The text is, is the context is so important. And this is where like our modern Bibles actually are quite helpful because they put in these nice Get little titles, right? You're like, <laughs> And that's that's kind of so I'm just I'm just going back to it not because I don't know what happened between chapter four of John and, and now but but it's an easy way to do it and part of what we're doing here at Sunday Gospel Reflections is to give you the tools you don't need to listen to me you need to have the tools so you can study your Bible so here we are we're in 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 chapter four but remember just going back before chapter four Jesus ends up at he's at the wedding at Cana in chapter two verse thirteen he goes for the Passover he goes back to Jerusalem. Then he heads back up through Samaria, up into the area of Galilee. And then he's going to come back down to Jerusalem. So he's got, in the Gospel of John, unlike the synoptics, Jesus does a number of trips back and forth to Jerusalem oh, and back, sure. right? Yeah. And those and these are, the, these are the stories that are given to us from chapter 4 of, of John to now the Samaritan woman, chapter 5. He goes to Jerusalem and he heals the, the paralytic, right? And then he heads back up to Galilee in where in John chapter 6, you can see verse 59. This is, this is of course, the bread of life discourse. This is on the right. Eucharist. Yeah. Chapter, chapter 6, verse 59, he's in Capernaum. Well, I didn't, you know, I never knew this, by the way. As a, as a Catholic, I was studying the Bible and John chapter 6 is so important in the Eucharist. But it wasn't until I was standing in this synagogue, I realized that's where he taught this. My head wow. blew off. I was so, I was so, it was amazing. So whenever we go to the Holy Land, we do this Bible study in the synagogue oh, in, cool. uh, in, uh, in Capernaum. But there he is up Capernaum, of course, in Galilee. 
And then chapter seven, he went about all of Galilee. And then the feet in verse two, the Jewish feast of tabernacles was at hand. He heads back to Jerusalem and then he's in Jerusalem. And we have these, these healings, which take place. One of the most important things that the healings in the gospel of John is they always take place in the Sabbath. Jesus is going after the Pharisees, after the Jewish leaders to restore their understanding of what the Sabbath is all about. But it's this point of his healing on the Sabbath, which becomes like the, the salt in the wound. And you can, you can see that in chapter five, verse 15, the man went away. This is the paralytic and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And the and this and this is why the Jews persecuted Jesus because he did this on the Sabbath day. So mm-hmm. time and time again here we have these healings that take place on the Sabbath day, and of course chapter nine where we're at now, verse thirteen, verse fourteen. Now it was a Sabbath day, and the blind man appears. So it's constant on the Sabbath day because the Sabbath day is the seventh day is a day in which God rests, and when God rests in the seventh day in Genesis chapter two verses one one two and three. God blesses, right? And what? so we say, what, what does God do on the seventh day? Well, he rests. Yeah, but what does he do on the seventh day? He blesses when he rests, right? His resting is a, is a, is a living out of his, of his nature, right? This pouring out of his life. The, the Sabbath day is for blessing. And what is blessing? But the giving of God's life to his creation, and so that this is what the Messiah is supposed to do, right? The king comes and sets his kingdom in order and where it's missing fundamental parts, right? Where legs don't walk anymore, he makes them walk. That's what a king does. Where eyes don't see anymore, he makes them see. Where hearts don't follow the Lord anymore, he makes those hearts follow the Lord. And he does this on the Sabbath day because the Sabbath day par excellence is for this, right? And so he goes in there to restore the Sabbath day to its proper nature and give man the ability to walk with him again, talk with him again, see the works of the Lord again. Yeah. So, okay. I guess that's your context. Yeah. So is this happening during the, the Feast of Tabernacles? Of, of, of course, Annie, this, this whole, from chapter eight, well, chapter seven, chapter eight, and chapter nine is all part of this time. He goes to Jerusalem, chapter seven, Feast of Tabernacles, chapter seven, verse two, Feast of Tabernacles, right? You could go listen to our studies on the on the Transfiguration, which we get into the Feast of Tabernacles again. But it was the Feast of Tabernacles was one of the harvest feasts of the Jews in which they celebrated. It had multiple layers to it, okay? As, as all the Jewish feasts, it has the natural layer, but it also has uh, the Exodus layer. And then this feast has another layer, which is a kingship layer, right? So that natural harvest layer is there, but then God's dwelling among his people is fundamentally important. The time of the Exodus in which God protected his people from their flight from Egypt to the promised land. And the Feast of Tabernacles celebrates this remembrance, okay? So the Jews would, for this feast, they would build huts on top of their, on top of their houses. They would live outdoors for eight days. And during those eight days, they had certain ceremonies they did, which recalled for them not only God's protection in during the time of Exodus, but also their restoration to paradise, right? Because if God dwells with us, then paradise is restored. So these huts are like, they're like, they're like living inside the garden again, right? They carried around with them this, this citrus fruit, which was a symbol of the tree of life. They carried branches in their hands and they would wave their branches in their hands and sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, quoting the Psalms, 
which were used now this next layer, this time of the of the of the kings, this time of harvest, uh, the gathering in of all of, of God's blessings was kind of hijacked by the kings because they says, look, once all the harvest is in and the people of God have all they need, we want them to be thanking God, but thanking God for the king who made this all happen, right? And so it also becomes the annual celebration of the enthronement of the king, okay? Mm-hmm. Now, I'm going to just, for a moment here, just move your memory because it blessed is who comes in the name of the Lord. We're about to prepare for what Christian feast day? Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday, which is taking place in the context of what Jewish feast? I'm assuming the same one. No. Palm Sunday takes place in the context of Passover. Oh, of course. Of course. But you know what I'm thinking? We've talked about Palm Sunday before, and you said that they thought that Tabernacles was coming. I know. I was was okay. You tricked me. I tricked you, Annie. No, but (laughs) the The Jews believed when the Messiah came that all their feasts would fall fall away, and that only the Feast of Tabernacles would remain because the Feast of Tabernacles is God dwelling with His people. Think Book of Revelation, Catholics who are biblically literate, God dwelling with His people. Right at the end of the Book of Revelation. So this is the presence of the Lord among his people. He is, he is the king, right? And so the kings of, of Israel used this feast as their annual celebration. And this psalm became attached to it. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. Hmm. Yeah, which, mean, which helps you understand what's going on with Palm Sunday. We're going to talk more about that next week. Suffice it to say for, for this week, during the Feast of Tabernacles, not only did they carry this, these, these symbols of paradise in their hands and chant about the coming king, or the, the celebration of the king, but they also took pit, big pitchers, silver pitchers, huge pitchers, and they would go down to the spring of Gihon, the only living spring in Jerusalem. They would fill it up with the water from the spring of Gihon. Why? Because in Genesis chapter 2, did we look at this last week, Annie? I don't think so. I think we were in a pregame with the ICC. But in Genesis chapter 2, verse 13, the river flowing out of paradise, one of the rivers that splits from that river is called the Gihon. Mm-hmm. It was part of the river of paradise. And wow. so the spring of Gihon was the water of restoration, the water from which flowed out of paradise. And so they would take these pitchers, silver pitchers, and carry them up to the temple, to the dwelling place of God. And they would pour these pitchers of water on top of the altar until the water started to flow out of the doors of the temple, right? The restoration of the rivers of paradise flowing out of the throne of God. Yeah. And Jesus then comes to the Feast of Tabernacles. And what is he in? And ah, sorry, let me add one other uh, of the of the kind of ceremonies in the court of the women. They would set up huge gold torches, huge torches that would be lit for all of the feasts, all the days of the feast. It was so bright at the Temple Mount that it was said that Jerusalem did not have night. It was there was no night. It was light. Again, think book of Revelation, guys. There will yeah. be no darkness, no light. There will be light all the time. This is because that's the restoration. My Messiah has come. So these torches were so big, these huge fires that was lighting up Jerusalem. So Jesus comes to the, te- to the, to the, uh, to the feast 
and then begins drawing all of these images to himself saying, you want to know who the true light of the world is? Do you want to know through the living water that you're, you want to drink? Who this, this is me, the Messiah who has come. You see that there, chapter eight, verse 12. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness. In chapter seven, verse 37. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and proclaimed, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Mm. You see that? Then mm. verse uh, chapter 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world, right? And then ultimately in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, right? So now he is drawing all of this, these things of the feast, the king, the fire burning, the water flowing. It's all found in him. The Feast of Tabernacles was fulfilled in him because he is the tabernacle of God. Yeah. And in him now, paradise is restored. Wow. So let's read the the gospel text and we can do like what we did last time, Father, where um, you just sort of stop me. But is there anything like thematically that we should be thinking about in terms of Lent slash the catechumen and whatnot as we're listening to. Oh, the, as far as the catechumen, yes, of course, the, the, uh, with, with the water and the, and the scene. I will say right at the beginning that in the gospel of John is all about signs, right? All about miracles happening and people coming to faith through what they see. But here is a person who did not see who could not see all that Jesus had done. He had, he didn't see the blind man be healed. He didn't see the multiplication of loaves and fishes. He didn't see Jesus walk on water. He didn't see any of that. Right. But he hears the voice of the Lord, right? He's the sheep who hears the the voice of the shepherd and he follows. Okay. So, so let's go ahead and and start reading the text. Chapter nine, verse one, chapter nine, verse one, and just stop me when you have things to say. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, actually, I'm going to stop. Why do they think that? Yeah, I mean, it's a concept that's totally foreign to us today, like totally not PC, right? Like that because someone is is handicapped or has some physical ailment that it's because of sin. No, but but and this was but it was present among the Jews of the time that they believed that that, you know, that someone who is suffering is suffering because, well, they Mm -hmm. sinned against God. And I'm going to I'm going to say something very much not PC right now, which is that's true. Whoa, Father has a guys. It's true because Adam and Eve, yeah, the fall of our first parents dislocated our entire created order from communion with God, like an earthquake, right? I, the image of an earthquake is, is perfect. Our whole created order. Why? Because God had placed this whole, he given us dominion to set our the created order in, in, in that was our job, the job of the king. And Adam and Eve refused to, to, to live out that gift. So everything that's placed in their hands fell with them. No, not because this man or his parents sinned, but because sin exists, our created order is fallen and broken. It's that brokenness that Jesus is going to take to him when he, when he comes and brings our human nature to him and goes to the cross. So now suffering can become redemptive. Well, we have a Christian understanding because of Jesus, but without Jesus, 
that's that's what they're dealing with and grappling with Mm. whose fault is this this isn't right that this happens so who's at fault for this yeah so this was the the understanding of the jews at the time but of course jesus is going to answer them so beautifully so this the, the the state of the world as it is is allowed by god that he might reveal even in our sin his love for us the breadth and depth of his love for us jesus could have stopped and god could have come in and said no adam and eve you're out i'm changing the land right i'm going to restore it all right now but it's like I, i like to think of it like this my son brings to me she brings me all the time i should have like a one of his pictures here i bet you i do probably in my list of I don't know, but anyways, they bring me these pictures, right? And you're like, like my son Vito is really into birthday cakes right now. He, and he likes big birthday cakes. So he's got these big pieces of paper and he draws the bigger the birthday cake means the bigger he loves you. So I come home, he's got this like big old thing, big birthday cake. And, uh, and, and, and now artistically, it's not great. What he's like but, three, right? Yeah. Right. And it's got three candles on it. So artistically not great, but, but it's, but it's beautiful because of his love for me. Yeah. And so I receive it and I don't go, well, Vito, the candles don't look right. Right. (laughs) No, I receive it. And then as a good father should do, I should do this more with my son. I take his hand. Right. And I say, son, here, let me help you draw I did this the other day with, with him and I helped him color in a section of the coloring book. Right. And so this is what, and we are, we are fathers in the image and lines, hopefully of our heavenly father, right. Who does this? He doesn't come to us and say, look at your human nature. How dare you can't walk. How dare you're blind. How dare you do this? Look at you. No, he takes our blindness and helps us bring healing. He, he, as I say, he will not save us without us because he loves us too much. He loves us too much to save us without us. He wants us to participate in his salvific act. And so he takes our, the brokenness that we are and allows us to begin to work within that and to bring healing within that. Yeah. And so he doesn't, fix it up but we wish he would do that but if he did that he would remove his uh, his love for us he would become a dictator yeah rather than our heavenly physician sure okay so i don't want to go i could go on get a whole homily on that i don't want to do that but there's your basics okay and that's what the concept they had go ahead good to know okay so jesus answered neither he nor his parents sinned it is so the works of god might be made visible through him we have to do the works of the one who sent me while it is day night is coming when no one can work while i am in the world i am the light of the world when he had said this he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva and smeared the clay on his eyes okay gross that's not in the gospel text and he said to him go wash in the pool of siloam which means sent so he went and washed and came back able to see Mm. I gotta ask why why spit on the ground and smear clay on the guy's well, eyes? Why didn't he just what, like touch him? You know what St. Ephraim says? He says that in this moment, Jesus being the creator, he says, This guy was born not only blind but without eyeballs. 
And he said, this is why Jesus took clay like God did in the Genesis and formed eyeballs for him. Whoa. Really? And And being the king, being the creator of the world, he restored his sight. He created eyes for the man, which is pretty cosmic, right? Yeah. So the, the fathers of the church are seeing all of what Jesus is doing in terms of the Garden of Eden, right? And that, that, that first layer of tabernacles mm-hmm. in which God is, is going to dwell among his people. St. Cyril of Alexandria says the source of water in the Feast of Tabernacles is the spiritual and heavenly Christ who waters with fountains on high those who receive him. But Annie, in, in not only St. Ephraim, the father's insight there, but this reference to, to the pool of Siloam is fundamentally yeah. important. And I'm just going to, for sake of time, I have to just gonna say it. Okay. And you guys can go back because you're biblically capable now going into uh, to second Kings and so forth to read the story of Hezekiah. Well, you'll remember at the time when the Assyrian army marched on Jerusalem, they encamped at the waters, the headwaters of, uh, of, of the spring of Gihon. And Hezekiah retunneled that spring so that they could not get the fresh water into Jerusalem and formed the pool of Siloam. Yeah. So, okay. Well, I have to take you there. Second Kings. We have to go there very, very quickly so that you guys all know where to look and can go do your research on your own. But take a look at chapter, chapter 18, verse 17. And the king of Assyria sent the Tartan, the, and it's going to go on, da, 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 next sentence. When they arrived, they came and stood by the conduit of the upper pool, which is in the highway of the Fuller's Field. Now, I'm going to go, I'm going to keep going to, cha- to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 20. The rest of the deeds of Hezekiah and all his might and how he made the pool and the conduit and brought the water into the city are they not written in the book of the Chronicles, the kings of Judah, and Hezekiah slept? Okay, so Hezekiah does this great act to save God's people uh, in the Old Testament. His work becomes an opportunity for the healing of this blind man in John chapter chapter 9 that we're in. But maybe even more importantly is back to Genesis chapter 2, in which this spring and this water was part of the river of life which flowed out of paradise, which watered the garden in which the tree of life grew in which Adam and Eve were meant to eat and live forever. Okay. Jesus is going to use this water to open this man's eyes and ultimately to feed him with the Eucharist, ultimately to feed all of us with the Eucharist. This is why the fathers of the church look at this passage very much in baptismal imagery. This man is going to go wash, not just with any old water, He's going to go wash with the waters of the pool of Siloam, which are the waters of the spring of Gion. Wow. And in washing of it, he's going to be cleansed of his sin. Re- okay. Read wow. his infirmity, I should say. I'm going to re-say that because I'm going to get sued and people. Are in washing of it, he's going, he's going to have his eyes opened. Yeah. And now he's going to be able to see the Lord and all of creation for what it is, yeah? And, and, and this is why, again, the, the baptismal imagery here is, is so rich in this gospel. Uh, of course, the gospel is also so rich in the imagery about the Eucharist. Jesus is going to feed us with the tree of life, 
which was planted in paradise and watered by the same water. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's beautiful. Okay. I don't know, Annie, where I jumped in there to talk about Siloam, but we can, I keep going now. Yeah. Okay. So um, he washes in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back able to see his neighbors and those who had seen him earlier as a beggar said, isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Someone said it is, but others said, no, he just looks like him. This is what I, I love this. The gospel of John now is reaching a fever pitch. And that fever pitch is very much on those two levels that we've been talking about. Remember Nicodemus. We know who you are. And Jesus says, you can't know who I am unless you're born again. And then, and uses that word anothen like this, two different levels with the Samaritan woman, right? How are you going to come and get water? You have no bucket and the well is deep, right? How are you going to get this, this Zoe water, this living water? And of course, Jesus isn't talking about the running water at the bottom of the well. He's talking about the life-giving water that he's going to give. Here now, and this happens multiple times, right? It's going to happen in John chapter 6. They're not going to understand how you can eat the flesh of the Son of God. They struggle to understand because they're operating on a natural level. They're seeing on a natural level. What we need to be able to do is see like God sees. Hello for Samuel. Yeah? To see as God sees. And here again, now the people are struggling. Now they don't even know who the guy is, right? Now they're debating, and, and, and they're even on, on the natural level, they can't figure it out, okay? And so this double layer continues in John, in which those are trying to graduate to supernatural faith to see as God sees, and yet they begin, they time and time fail to do so. Keep going, Annie. All right, he said, this is, uh, others said, no, he just looks like him. He said, I am. So they said to him, how were your eyes opened? He replied, the man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and told me go to Siloam and wash. So I went there and washed and was able to see. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought the one who was once blind to the Pharisees. Now Jesus had made clay and opened his eyes on a sabbath so then the pharisees also asked him how he was able to see he said to them he put clay on my eyes and i washed and now i can see so some of the pharisees said this man is not from god because he does not keep the sabbath but others said how can a sinful man do such signs and there was a division among them so they said to the blind man again what do you have to say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. Okay, now we're going to see now in this gospel, this progression. Because be, the, 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 just like with the woman at the well, right? Yeah. Just like with Nicodemus, those who come to the light and remain in the light will eventually be able to see. So the, the healing in the gospels, all the healings, this is so beautiful. It's not so much about the physical healing. Yes, Jesus healed this guy. Yes, he was blind physically, and yes, he now can see physically. But more importantly, this guy's going to get eyes of faith, and he's going to come from nothing. He didn't know who the guy, he couldn't see Jesus, and now he's going to say he's a prophet, and he's going to grow just like the woman, at the, uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. This gospel of John is so easy in some ways because it's just like the same story over and over and over again with different people. Okay. Love it. Now the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and gained his sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had gained his sight. They asked them, 
Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind. We do not know how he sees now, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone acknowledged him as the Christ, he would be expelled from the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, question him. So a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give God the praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, if he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind and now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? Do you see? How did he open your eyes? This is a little bit hard. Honestly, this is a little bit hard to do this text out of the context of the rest of the Gospel of John because you have to read it. This is, it the, chapter nine is almost a comedy act. They, yeah. they, they, they show themselves to be so blind. Yeah, they show themselves to be so ignorant. The ones who said, we know who you are in, with Nicodemus, ultimately can't even they can't they, they 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 can't not only now they can't see at a natural at a supernatural level, they can't even see at a natural level right they themselves have become blinded by their sin and their inability to receive what jesus has come to give them yeah so we had just should keep reading through the text and allow their ridiculousness to kind of pop out for us because john is trying to do it john's allowing us now to he's revealing them for who they are completely open now keep going yeah and i love how the blind man responds here <laughs> how did he open your eyes he answered them i told you already and you did not listen why do you want to hear it again do you want to become his disciples too they ridiculed him and said you are that man's disciple we are disciples of moses we know that god spoke to moses but we do not know where this one is from the man answered and said to them, Do you see their confession there? Yes. Right? They they admit that they don't know where he's from and they've been struggling. They don't even know where he was born in this gospel at this point. They don't know who he is. They debate whether who who, who Jesus's parents are. They debate where who, who this blind man even is, even though he's been in their midst the whole time. Okay? Yeah. So, goes on. The man answered and said to them, this is what is so amazing that you do not know where he is from yet he opened my eyes we know that god does not listen to sinners but if one is devout and does his will he listens to him it is unheard of that anyone ever opened the eyes of a person born blind if this man were not from god he would not be able to do anything they answered and said to him you were born totally in sin and you are trying to teach us then they threw him out when jesus heard that they had thrown him out he found him and said do you believe in the son of man he answered and said who is he sir that i may believe in him jesus said to him you have seen him the one speaking with you is he he said I do believe, Lord, and he worshiped him. Then Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, 
so that those who do not see might see and those who do see might become blind. Okay, so now we've come full full, full circle now, right? Now the um, uh, um, the the Jews in the in the context here of Genesis chapter seven, the adulterous woman. We haven't spoken about the adulterous woman, the adulterous woman, the paralytic, the blind man. The 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 Jews have now become the ones who have become adulterers, for they've turned their back on on their their divine husband, right? They are the ones who have become paralytics. They are the ones who have become ultimately blind in the story. And those who were blind, the adulterers, those who were found in sin are the ones who come to faith and are able to walk with God and give an eyes of faith, right? This is the story that is given to us, the gospel of John by the church at this time for those that are making this, this, this walk toward Pascha toward the Easter, towards the resurrection, toward the dwelling of God with men, that on that day that we begin to see again, we begin to walk again, we put our sins behind us and our ways away from the Lord behind us is our former life. And now with Nicodemus and the adulterous woman, with this blind man, with the paralytic, we can say he is truly the Messiah. He truly is the king. He is the one who has come to reorder his kingdom and to restore all things in the image and likeness of God. And just to kind of touch on the epistle before we wrap things up for today, Father, in Ephesians yeah. chapter five, St. Paul telling us we were once in darkness. We need to live as children of the light. Mm. Annie? Yeah, I'm gonna. I got Saint Ephraim right here. Oh, I actually your read. You, I, yeah, yeah, your man. He says the light sprang forth from the dust, just as in the beginning, when the shadow of heavens was present. The darkness was spread out over everything. He commanded light, and it was born from the darkness. Likewise, here too, he made clay from his spittle and brought to fullness what was lacking in creation, which was from the beginning, to show that what was in his hand was bringing to completion what was lacking in human nature. Those whose eyes were outwardly open were being led on by the blind man who was able to see inwardly. For the blind man was being led on in a hidden way by those whose eyes were open, but, were, but who were inwardly blind. The blind man washed the clay from his eyes and saw himself. These others washed their blindness from their hearts and were approved. When our Lord opened the eyes of one blind man publicly on that occasion, he opened the eyes of many blind people secretly, for that blind man was indeed blind. He was like a source of gain for our Lord, since he gained many blind people through him, healing them from blindness of heart. And so we ask for the intercession of the blind man who was healed in the gospel of John. Lord, give us also this ability to see. Open my eyes that have become so uh, blinded by my sins, by the distractions of the world, unable to see really what life is all about. Uh, what a beautiful Sunday this is for the church, a beautiful Sunday for the catechumens, for all of us preparing and praying as the blind. Can you imagine that blind man on that day, seeing for the first time? He was born blind. Allow us, Lord, to see for the first time. Thank you for joining us for the Institute of Catholic Culture's Sunday Gospel Reflections podcast. The Institute of Catholic Culture is an adult catechetical organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. 
I invite you to explore all we have to offer, including over 900 hours of on-demand catechetical opportunities, and sign up for our upcoming events by visiting instituteofcatholicculture.org.